First Peter 3, and we begin at verse 8, suffering for doing good. <clears throat> Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what, for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Well, good morning, everyone, once again. It's lovely to be with you this morning. I want to ask you a question to kick us off this morning. What do you think makes for a good life? It's a question I think many of us probably have considered at some point. Is it the pursuit of wealth? Maybe the pursuit of a career, success in that career. Maybe it's about fame for you. Perhaps a good life is about being the best at something. Maybe you want to be the world's best golfer. Maybe it's the best pianist in the world. What makes for a good life, do you think? I think it's a question that many of us have thought through. I know that because when I... Google this question, I found a TED talk by a guy called Robert Waldinger on this topic. It had been viewed more than 20 million times. Obviously, people are interested in the answer to this question. 
Robert Waldinger is a professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and he's the director of what is probably the world's longest study looking at just this question, what makes for a good life? That study that Professor Waldinger has been looking at has been running for more than 75 years, and it's been looking at the lives of 720 or so men, asking them questions about their work, about their happiness, their health, and their home life. It's a study that involves the poorest of the poor and also those from the wealthy or privileged backgrounds. As that study has been going, those men um, who started off as just boys have gone on to become lawyers and doctors. One of them even became a president of the United States. At the same time, others have gone on to develop illnesses and schizophrenia and alcoholism. Some of these people have gone up the social ladder, others have gone down. What makes this study so interesting, apart from the length of time that it's been running for, is the detail with which they look at these people's lives. They don't just ask them each year to fill out a questionnaire, but rather they look at blood tests, they get their medical records, they uh, go and visit them in their homes, they interview their families. Observations are made. It really is the most detailed study on what makes for a good life. And the results of this study, Professor Waldinger tells us, is overwhelmingly clear. What makes for a good life? His answer is relationships. Relationships are so important. He says it's not money or fame, it's not your cholesterol readings, but rather it's the strength and the resilience of our relationships that make for a good life. Do you think the Apostle Peter knew that? What do you reckon? I think he did. Our passage today is midway through Peter's instructions on how we are to live. Midway through his advice on what makes for a good life. In chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, Peter's given instructions on how to live with respect to the government how to behave towards those who might enslave us. He's, he's uh, given instructions for husbands and wives. And so much of what he says is about relationships. You must, of course, remember that this letter, uh, 1 Peter, was written in the context of addressing suffering and persecution within a church. But here in this letter, in the verses we read today, Peter focuses on Relationships. Have a look with me at verse 8. You'll find it on page 1,889 of your Bibles. I'd love you to follow along. Verse 8 says this. Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. He's saying relate to each other well. It's an instruction directed towards everyone here, isn't it? That's all of Peter's readers, all of those who are reading this letter. So far we've had instructions kind of to husbands, we've had instructions to wives, to slaves, those who are living under the authority of the government. But here in verse 8, Peter's addressing everyone, the whole church. Church was probably a little bit different back then to it is today. They may well have met in someone's home rather than in a building like this. But Peter wants everyone to pay attention to what he's about to say. And it's instruction concerning relationships, isn't it? About maintaining and strengthening relationships and about living harmoniously. 
be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another. Robert Waldinger's study looked at 724 men over 75 years. He tells us that the key to living well was having good, strong, resilient, healthy relationships. Here we have Peter outlining exactly how we're to do that. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. This is what relationships in the church should look like. I hope you've experienced some of that here at Trinity Church Unley. We should be like a community, like a family, shouldn't we? We should be sympathetic, compassionate and humble. Sure, we get it wrong sometimes. I'm sure you've felt that at different times. Yes, we make mistakes in this. The reality of church life is that we're still warts and all people, isn't it? Here's the reflection of John Stott, who's a pastor, or was a pastor, he's no longer alive, in England. This is what Stott says on this kind of problem between the ideal and the reality. He says, the problem we experience whenever we think about church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he has committed himself forever engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace and pilgrim people headed from the eternal city. But here's the reality, he says, but in reality we claim to be, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half educated and half saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance and our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation. He's done a pretty good job at nailing that tension, hasn't he? The reality between uh, where we should be and where we are. So it's an aspirational goal for us, isn't it? For our churches to be places of love, and sympathy, and compassion, and humility. It's aspirational, yet at the same time, those of us who love Jesus have been given His Spirit that works to transform us. I pray regularly that I would be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. I pray for us as a church that we would be like that. And so as we read 1 Peter chapter 3 today, about how we're to behave, do you think these instructions are applicable to us today? I think they are. I think if we're to survive in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile towards Jesus, we need to remember that our churches, this church, needs to be a place of community, a place of family, a place where we can live our best lives together needs to be a place of refuge and sanctuary. So can I encourage you today to look for these attributes of love and humility. Feed those things in your own life. Pray for them. Because we're going to need to be like this as the hostility of the world grows towards Jesus. So I think verse 8 is all about how we're to behave in the church, to be like-minded, to love, to be humble. 
Verse 9 seems to be more concerned with our behavior towards those who are outside of the church, even those who might be the church's antagonists. It brings to mind, doesn't it, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I kind of hear as I read these words. Let me read verse 9 to you. It says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. I think these instructions relate to how we deal with those outside of the church because having just encouraged those within the church to be loving and humble and compassionate and kind, it would be strange to expect insults within the church. So it seems more that this is an instruction concerning how we relate to the rest of the world. Peter's encouragement, isn't it, is that we would be people of peace and grace. Just as Jesus urged in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek, so here Peter is encouraging a response of blessing rather than retaliation. That's hard in reality as well, isn't it? I've got four kids. Having kids has taught me a lot of things. But I'm reminded by having four kids almost on a daily basis that kids have an acute sense of fairness. I don't know how many times I've heard this phrase in our house, that's not fair. Life's not always fair, is it? Peter says, repay evil with blessing. I was listening to a UK preacher who was teaching on this same passage and he told this story of a young army cadet whose practice every night before he went to sleep was to pray. He was a man who loved Jesus and wanted to honour him with his life. There in his barracks, every night he would kneel by his bed and pray. And as you can imagine, that was met by ridicule from some of the other cadets. One evening while he was praying at the side of his bed, someone hoofed their dirty, muddy boots at him and knocked him to the ground. The next morning that Christian soldier got up especially early, he cleaned and polished those boots and returned them to their owner. See, that's what it means, doesn't it, to repay evil with blessing. It's not easy for us to do that. In fact, it'll grate against our kind of internal fairness indicator that I think we're all born with. But that's the way in which Peter urges us to deal with those who insult us. I want to pause here for a moment to be clear about what I think Peter's not saying. He's not saying that for the Christian there is no avenue for you to pursue justice or recourse, or to seek compensation. Particularly in our world today, our world is different to that of Peter's. In our world today, if you are suffering in one way at work, if you're being verbally or physically or spiritually insulted, you are free to take action. Indeed, please do take action in those cases. But do it with grace and kindness. See, these avenues were not necessarily available for the people that Peter was writing to. You might have to think about how the church in a, in a country where Christians really are heavily persecuted might behave in these situations. Perhaps that's closer to the situation that Peter was addressing, where their freedom to do so was not there. But here's what does carry over for us today. Living well matters because God is watching Our God is a God who knows all and is all-powerful. Peter reminds us of this by quoting from Psalm 34. Let me read it to you. 
Uh, You'll see it there in verses 10, 11 and 12 of our passage. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter's encouraging a, a kind of countercultural way of behaving. He's encouraging a way of behaving that kind of flies in the face of our natural tendencies. He's saying, if you're insulted, don't retaliate. Rather, seek to please God. Seek peace. And he's urging us to behave that way. Well, because God who sees all things is watching. And not only is he watching, says Peter, but if you behave that way, God is on your side. By using this psalm, Peter is picking up the idea that we saw back in chapter 2, that those who live righteously, those who seek God faithfully, will in the end, perhaps not today, but will in the end be vindicated. And so we are able to turn the other cheek. We're encouraged to repay evil with blessing. Peter continues on in verse 13, providing another reason as to why living the good life matters. He says, if you do good, who's going to harm you? I think it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? As we implicitly know, the answer still is that even if we behave well, some will want to harm us. Sure, there probably were some adversaries in the early church that Peter was speaking to have may well have seen the good behaviour of those in the early church and may well have decided not to harm them. But it seems unlikely that this would have been universally true. Some people still choose to harm you even when you seek to do right. And when that happens, Peter's advice is, don't be frightened, but hold on to Jesus, hold on to the hope that he provides. And that sort of behaviour, it's likely to raise some eyebrows, isn't it? If we hold on to the hope we have in Jesus, in spite of opposition people are going to ask why. I want to tell you a little bit of a story. It's about Graham and Gladys Staines. You may have heard of Graham and Gladys before. Their story is worth looking up and worth reading about because I haven't got time to tell you all about them this morning. I'll simply tell you that they were missionaries in India. They worked with the poorest of the poor in India, managing leprosy homes. Graham also assisted in the translation of the Bible into one of the Indian dialects, into one of the Indian languages. In 1999, just short of 20 years ago, Graham and his two sons, who were only boys, were murdered and murdered in a terrible way. They were murdered because they were proclaiming who Jesus was. And as I read about their story this week, I was really touched by it, partly because they were Australians. They came from Queensland. Their two boys were roughly the same age as my two girls. And this didn't happen hundreds of years ago in the dim, dark ages, but less than 20 years ago. His wife, Gladys, and their daughter, Esther, stayed on in India after her husband and sons were murdered. Gladys very publicly forgave those who murdered her husbands and sons. This is the statement that she made in the inquiry into the death of her husband and her boys. I'm going to read it to you and it's on the screen behind me. 
She says, The Lord God is always with me to guide me and help me to try and accomplish the work of Graham. But I sometimes wonder why Graham was killed and also what made his assassins behave in such a brutal manner on the night of the 22nd, 23rd of January, 1999. It is far from my mind to punish the persons who were responsible for the death of my husband, Graham, and my two children. But it is my desire and hope that they would repent and be reformed. Their story and her love for her God was published across newspapers throughout India. I want to be clear here today, this story is at the extreme end of Christian persecution, isn't it? My understanding is that the situation in 1 Peter wasn't as significant as this. It was more like discrimination rather than outright murder. But in Gladys, we see someone who, despite severe suffering, puts her hope in Jesus. She understood that this life was temporary. She understood that just as Jesus suffered, we too may have to suffer. She understood, it seems, that just as Jesus was vindicated, and raised to the right hand of the Father, we too one day will be vindicated. Our suffering will end. And one day we will stand in the presence of God, all things made right. And he will look upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. What I really appreciate about Gladys's story is she was able to clarify what her hope was. It was in Jesus. So important for us to be able to do that, isn't it, in our world today? Being able to articulate the good news of the gospel. Let me ask you, why is the gospel good news? Why is it good news for all people? Peter encourages us in verse 15, he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If you're here today as a follower of Jesus, are you able to articulate the hope that you have? How would you go about doing that? Peter's not, I think, telling us that we need to have the most succinct gospel presentation ever, that we need to have all these Bible verses memorized or those sorts of things. But he is saying that we should be able to simply and clearly explain the hope that we have. If you don't feel like you might be able to do that this morning, I'd encourage you to spend some time over the next few days working on this. Because words are important at this point, aren't they? Peter seems to be encouraging us to be able to verbalize the hope that we have. It's kind of like the order is our behavior, living the good life, should provide opportunities for us to speak about the hope we have in Jesus. And yet, despite this hope, Peter's encouragement is to live the good life. Despite the opportunities this may may have to give account, suffering is still going to be part of the lives of the people who Peter's writing to. Because living the good life doesn't mean that suffering will go away. What do you do when that's the case? Peter's answer is to look to Jesus. Let me read to you from verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. These are pretty powerful verses, aren't they? 
Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. If you're here today just wondering who is Jesus, wanting to get to know him a little bit better, here's a great place to start in order to think through who he is. He's the one who is truly righteous. He's the one who really lived the good life, and yet he suffered for our sins, and he did it to bring us to God. Powerful verses, aren't they? And really encouraging, I think, are verses that many of us probably treasure. What has Jesus done in order to bring us to God? And then we get to verses 19 to 21 of um, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you know what these mean, I'd love you to come and tell me afterwards. I think they are some of the most complicated verses in the New Testament. Um, Let me just read them to you. Verse 19 says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. What do you think Peter means when he's, what he's writing here? If you're confused, you're in good company. I haven't yet read a commentator who's convinced exactly what these verses mean. I'm just going to give you three options that I think are reasonable options. I'm thankful to Scott McKnight for setting these out for me. What might Peter be saying here? The first of these three options is that perhaps what's going on here is that uh, Jesus descended into hell after his crucifixion and there preached to the spirits. That's the first option. Second option could be that what Peter's trying to say here is that Jesus was pre-existent and he appeared in the person of Noah, or perhaps in some of the other prophets as well, to preach to the spirits of the day. Or thirdly, what Peter's trying to say here is to describe a, a triumphal proclamation over the spirit world. Well, exactly what Peter means, I think we're going to have to wait until heaven to ask him. But the thrust of what's going on here, I think, is not quite so difficult to understand. I think what the thrust of the message of what Peter's trying to say here is to encourage Christians who are suffering by pointing them to the example of Jesus who suffered and yet was vindicated. See, Jesus suffered as a righteous person. He lived the good life and yet for our sins, he was hung on a cross and killed. But he was also vindicated in his resurrection and he now sits at the right hand of God. Exactly what Peter's trying to say, it probably doesn't matter too much, providing we're able to read this passage in that wider context, that just as Jesus suffered, so too the churches that Peter were writing to were suffering, and just as Jesus was vindicated, so too the Christians in this early church would one day be vindicated. That's where their hope lies. It's worth pausing here for a moment, just to ensure that we understand exactly what Peter means by living the good life. The good life itself will not result in vindication. We're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus and his work that saves us. It's through the power of the resurrection that we're vindicated, not through the way in which we live our lives. Next week, I told you before, Joe is going to be baptised. 
He's being baptised on the understanding that without the work of Jesus, his conscience would not be clear. He's being baptised on the understanding that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only thing that's able to cleanse him and bring him to God. Baptism is a symbol of that cleansing work that Jesus has already done inside of Joe. Living the good life, I'd love Joe to grow up living the good life. I'm sure his parents would love him to do that as well. To have strong and resilient relationships, to be humble in the way that he lives. But that alone won't bring about his vindication. That alone won't save him. We're saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's by his work that we're vindicated. It's by his work that we find ourselves in his family. And it's in that family where we're charged here by Peter to care for one another, to love each other and to walk humbly with each other, to be sympathetic and like-minded. Started off this morning telling us about the power of good relationships. They help us to live the good life. Peter's encouraging us to live the good life, to be like-minded, sympathetic, love each other, and to do so more and more in our increasingly hostile environment. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it, about how we're to live as a church, how we're to care for each other. Let me pray for us that we be a church that's known to be like that. Father God, we ask that you would help us and this church to be a place that's known for its love, its like-mindedness, its humility, sympathy and compassion. We ask that you would transform us to be like that. Father, for those of us who are suffering in one form or another today, we thank you for the great reminder we have in Jesus that he too suffered and yet he was vindicated. Thank you for his resurrection. It's a reminder that we too will one day be vindicated. We pray that you would help us to hold on to that truth when life is difficult. Give us lots of opportunities to articulate that to those around us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, have, I have one question today. It's a question that uh, essentially says, uh, terrible things happen in our world, uh, and uh, some of those things are, are really, really bad. Um, the question referred to uh, what happened in the Second World War. Uh, how, how do we then uh, kind of, uh, how do we feel with the victims uh, who have been uh, hurt, and how is it right for them to feel hatred, and so on? It's a good question, isn't it? It's really the question I think that Peter's trying to address, although perhaps not in such an extreme situation. Um, Firstly, I think uh, it's good to note that in our world today, we have opportunities to seek justice and uh, compensation. Our world is based that way, and we're free to seek and pursue those things. Uh, So I'd like to encourage you to do that if you feel that you've been hurt uh, in a particular way. Um, We can't, I don't think I can sympathise completely with with those who are victims of the Second World War. It's not, uh, I'm not able to do that in one way. But I can point you to people like Gladys Staines, who had terrible things happen in her life and was able to follow the instructions of verse 9 in our passage, which says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And I think what Peter's saying is that the reason why we can do that is we know that vindication will come in the age to come. 
that God is a God of justice and he will bring about that justice. And I think that's the hope that Gladys is holding on to and it's the hope that I think we can hold on to as well. We can't necessarily feel sympathy with those who have been terribly wronged in some cases, uh, but they too can look for vindication in the age to come.